what's really interesting is that we're part of a revolution. Do you fully believe that? One of the challenges with the church and the American church is that we have forgotten that we're part of a revolution. And what I mean by that is that we come and we say, okay, how are the chairs? Most of you in this room think it's too cold in here or too hot in here. That's fine. Half the time I forget to turn my mic on. That's fine. I don't even have this one on. There's a lot of moving pieces that are going on and we are not building production. We're all about the presence because it's all about Jesus. And one of the things that I, I get the pleasure of doing is I get to say, okay, Lord, where are you moving? Lord, what are you doing? Friday was a perfect day for this. And I, I'm going to tie it back to what we're doing after, after, after service. But Friday was an awesome day for me. And I hear that, hear me say that I, I'm the pastor, so I get special privileges. Uh, special privileges, I get invited to things that other people don't, and that's fine. I, I'm sitting on Friday at noon at the Sherry's with Jonathan, and Don and Shebra are working there. And it was one of the joys of my life because I'm sitting there, and I order my eggs Benedict. I love my eggs Benedict from Sherry's. I'm sitting at the corner table, and before I know it, all of a sudden, Shebra's daughter's there, and Don's there, and Shebra's there. And in this crowded Sherry's, we grab hands, and we pray to Jesus Christ to bless this food and to watch over this place. And I sat there, and as we were doing it, as Don was praying over us, I thought, we're part of a revolution. We are part of a revolution right now. And then Megan and I got invited by Lisa, thank you, Lisa, to uh, a, an event where it was the new launch of this I don't even know how old it's been. I guess it's like 50 years, 1970s. Lakewood United, a nonpartisan uh, nonprofit where they come together and they're just going to say, how does the community come together to make Lakewood a better place? Amen. And it was awesome to see uh, Lisa in her element. And she passes the mic around. And, and this is because this is what the Lord's doing. But we pass the mic and it comes to Meg and I. And I say, uh, I'm, I'm, I fumbled actually. And I said, I'm Kurt. This is my wife, Meg. And we're the pastors of Redeem, and we just bought the People's Plaza. And, and there were city councilmen, there were superintendent schools, there were Lakewood leaders of all different things, about 50 in there maybe. And people started cheering, like started cheering. And, and, and they're saying, this is what I'm saying is, is right here, right now, if you don't feel it, you're part of a revolution. Every church that meets on Sunday. It's not just redeemed, but every church that meets on Sunday that lifts up the name of Jesus is part of a revolution. The problem with it, church, is that we got our opinions in here and we got our uh, what we want, our own personal preferences, and we can say, oh, this was not the song that I wanted. This was not the sermon that I wanted. This is not what we kind of thought it was. And we miss the revolution that Jesus Christ is trying to do at Gravely and Bridgeport. You do not get standing or you do not get applause by, I'm assuming most people, not Christians in there that are at this, uh, at the country club. And they're saying, we are so glad that something good is happening at Gravely and Bridgeport. We're part of a revolution. I was part of a revolution at, at Sherry's and I was part of a revolution at the uh, Tacoma Country Club. And here we sit, part of the revolution. And one of the things that's important to say is that we come together as community. And when we come together as community, we don't just go to church, but we start being the church. The revolution spreads. It does. And, and I don't care if another person walks in here who's just another Christian. The revolution spreads when people that say, I'm so far from God, but I want to come into this place because I've heard what Jesus is doing. Amen? Amen? And that's what I want to be a part of. And so 
we're going to talk a little bit about how we do that and the, the kind of core values and all that stuff. But the biggest thing is right after service, stay. And we've got just a lunch. And we're just going to eat together. OG, Redeem people, you can stay too. It's fine. But uh, we're going to just talk about the future of Redeem and what we're trying to do, all right? But we're part of a re revolution. And one of the challenges is that our happiness, our pleasure, and our lives can get in the way of understanding Jesus' teachings. Do you believe that when we come here and when we profess Jesus as Lord, we're part of the revolution? Do you believe that? The way of Jesus, the kingdom of God entering the world, creates an upside-down kingdom. What happens is both sinners and people who think they're self-righteous, they come and they say, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. And in the it not making sense is where the revolution is. We're going to talk about today, Mark 2, or smack dab in the middle, uh, and it's called the controversy stories, okay? Mark 2 are the controversy stories. What does that mean? Once again, we're going to see Jesus go up against the religious leaders. It's going to be Jesus versus religious leaders, and the religious leaders of the day are going to confront, and they're going to combat, and they're going to question Jesus on a variety of things, okay? And so ultimately, it's raising this question, this important question. Put yourself in, that, in, in, in the time of, the, the, of Israel in this day. And the question is this, who's qualified to lead people in matters of faith? This is a huge question. Is it going to be the scribes and the Pharisees? Is it going to be the Sadducees? Is it going to be the high priests? Is it going to be the chief priests? Who's in charge of what's happening? Or is it going to be Jesus? This new rabbi who has come onto the scene and who claims that he's the Messiah, who claims that he's here to bring the kingdom of God. And now, and then we see these five controversy stories. They're going to go like this. The religious leaders in Jesus are going to go like this, but we can learn a lot within this. We talked about it last week, the healing of the paralytic man. And Jesus not only heals the man, but he forgives him of the sin as well. And the scribes in the room are not happy about what's going on, and so they start to ask some questions. And then there's two more, the story of, the, of Levi or Matthew, as we know him, and the uh, question of Jesus about fasting. We're going to focus on those two today. Next week, we're going to talk about Sabbath, the importance of Sabbath, because the religious leaders are going to go after Jesus with Sabbath as well. And so let's dig in this week. Mark 2, 13 through 14 he went out again besides the sea. This is the story of Jesus. Mark says it all the time. And what happens? We talked about the last three weeks. All the crowd was coming to him. And he was what? Teaching them. Now, it doesn't say he was casting out demons here, but you know, he's teaching and casting out demons. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, known as Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to them, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Now, the call of Levi is much like the other disciples with one important difference. He's a tax collector. All right. It's important to understand this. A fisherman was the bottom rung of society. It, Jesus has now called fishermen. That's weird. A rabbi calling fishermen. Now he's going to go one step further. And he's going to call a tax collector. Now, this is interesting to, to say that uh, that. Tax collectors were not disliked in Israel. They were hated in Israel. They, they were hated by the people. They were viewed as traitors. 
the Jewish uh, people, that knew, they knew that they, they were Jewish people, the tax collectors, but they were collecting money for who? The Roman government. And they were burdensome, burdensome on the, the, the Jewish people. There were taxes on water and on meat and on salt and on roads and on cities and on houses. Everything was taxable, okay? But what's interesting is that the tax collectors were actually leased positions. So it means that they already were paying the bill to the Roman government. And the Roman government's like, thank you. Now what do they get to do? The tax collector, based off of how good you are, you can exhort the people for money. So it's not, hey, here's how much you owe the Romans. It's here's how much you're going to pay me for this, right? And so what we see is that it was the most dishonest occupation that you could ever have. This is who Jesus calls. He said fishermen, and now he's calling these people who are this person who is in a dishonest occupation. It was so bad that their giving or their alms actually were not accepted at the temple because it was dirty money. And so what we see is that the crowd is following him around, and we see him teaching to them, and we see him go up to this probably toll collector booth. It was probably for customs right there by the sea. And they go up to Levi, and he says, follow me. And this outcast, this low life of society, what does he do? He gets up and he follows Jesus. Having just dealt with the leper, as we talked about last week, touching a leper was a big deal. And then we see he heals this paralyzed man who his friends just straight up vandalized one of the disciples' homes, right? They cut through the roof. And Jesus calls another outcast. For what? It's important for us to understand this. People in the room, 2023, many of us who have been believers for a long time, remember this truth. He did this to demonstrate that no one, no one is beyond call, God's call and grace. No one is beyond God's call and his grace. It's amazing. Uh, I, didn't, I grew up in Indiana, so it's like everyone's a Christian, right? It's, it's like Bible Belt, right? I, I have invited two or three people, and I know we, Jonathan and I were talking about this this week. I've invited people to the church, and they literally say, I, I can't step foot in your church. It will burn this place down. They feel like they're so guilty that, they can, like, that there's like this, this thing that's happening here, and this holiness that you can't even come to. And I say no one is beyond God's call and God's grace. I come as the pastor, as the sinner, right? It didn't burn up here when I came in. Many of us feel unqualified for service. I've had this conversation with many of you. You feel like your past or your skill set is so far from being able to, to, to serve. But Jesus didn't call the qualified. He called the people with a life story and changed their life story so they came from outcasts to kingdom. They came from outcast to kingdom. And God will always work through the outcast to glorify his kingdom. Do you believe that? People are way more attracted to the outcast than they are the people that think they have it all together. And we're going to see that here. Jesus goes one step further, Mark 2, 15 through 17. And as he reclined at the table in this, his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. 
And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Can I get an amen in this house? Not only does Jesus call Matthew, he shares a table of fellowship with him. This is huge. Verse 15 literally says he reclined, meaning that in some sort of celebratory meal. This was not just a meal for nourishment. He's reclining. He's spending time. Back then, dining together was an expression of identity and belonging. Today, it's the same thing. None of y'all really have people over for dinner. We understand that. But when you do, you're bringing people in and you're helping them feel like they belong, right? But it's important to note this. For the tax collectors and the sinners, they seem to be seeking out a table of fellowship with Jesus. It appears, and we can misread this, it appears because it says that they followed him. It appears that they were interested in the kingdom of God and they proclaimed, and they, they were listening to what Jesus was proclaiming. These tax collectors and these sinners, they understood what was happening more than the religious leaders. The act alone, not the heart, shocked religious leaders. It shocked them. Again, not the act, or not the heart, but the act. They viewed it completely from act, not heart. And then we see that Jesus, just like when he touched the leper, this was scandalous. And we see that he eats with quote unquote sinners. Now, now the word sinner here is a technical term. It's set to, to, to be people who regard, who disregarded what the Pharisees had set up, okay? They were untaught in the law, is what it really means. They they don't abide in the rigor of the Pharisees. And, and there was this meticulous maintaining that these religious leaders did to keep ceremonial purity. And they start criticizing Jesus for what? What do the religious leaders start criticizing for? They criticize Jesus for not being a separatist. That's what they're saying. You're, you're not setting yourself apart here for not observing the difference between the righteous themselves as they viewed it and the sinners. And we see the religious leaders begin to confront him. And they don't confront Jesus. What do they do? You'll see it over and over again. They approach the disciples. And they kind of lay it into the disciples' heads. Why? They ask this question, why? And Jesus overhears this and he answers. And he answers like he always answers. You have to understand, Jesus is always proclaiming what? He's proclaiming his mission. And he answers with a, a sort of a proverb. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. He's like, look, here is my mission. Do you see it? Here's my mission. And you know this, only sick people need doctors. But this word, the righteous, it's different than we think. It's different. Jesus is saying something different than we think. He's refer referring to those who saw themselves righteous. Nobody is righteous in and of themselves. And the Pharisees saw themselves as righteous. People who believe they are self-righteous. So they have no need to repent, no need to believe. But Jesus is saying to everyone, look, he's playing tongue in cheek here. He's saying the righteous are just as sinful. 
those self-righteous, those people who think they have it all together, they're just as simple, sim- sinful, and they humbly acknowledge that they don't humbly acknowledge their need and receive their forgiveness and enter God's kingdom. This is why Jesus ate with quote-unquote sinners. And this is why each of us, whether a new believer or a believer that's been here for 30, 40, 50 years, we have to understand this. We have to remember that we are not righteous in our own doing. We are not righteous in our own doing. We, it's only because of Jesus, and he came to call sinners. Those of us who have been coming to church for 30, 40, 50 years, Jesus is still calling us. He's saying, come to me, all who have fallen short, all who have sinned, at the foot of the cross is where you find the mercy. Amen? Amen. This is a church that needs to be a house where people come and they hear the life-changing words of Jesus, not people who think that they're perfect. They need to hear our story. They need to hear all that we've been through because they will meet Jesus when they meet us who are broken. Not just behavior modification, but life transformation. He was seeing life transformation with the tax collectors and the sinners. These are people that are going from outcast to kingdom. It's huge. And when you see outcast to kingdom, it changes everything. Each of us has had a life transformation, and we must not forget. But so what is this to look like? What is this to look like? Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus tells this parable just to keep knocking the heads, right? So we're going to go further. We're going to go further forward. But he said this again. Sorry, Luke 18, 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Now, this is really weird how they say it. I'm not like other people. I want to be careful. I don't think that I've ever said, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. But my heart has been there. My heart has been there. It says, or even like the tax collector. Look at me. Look at what I've done. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Again, here we see two characters complete opposite ends of the spectrum, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they come to the Temple Mount to pray, and they approach God starkly different. And we see this. The Pharisee says, look at how good I am, and look at all the things that I do. And we see opposite. The man, the tax collector, stood at a different a distance, refused to even look up at heaven, beat his chest, and identifies himself as what? A sinner. And he's asking God for mercy, not based on his own behavior. He's not basing it on his own goodness. He's basing it on this, that God has committed to being merciful. That God has always said, I'm a merciful God. 
And if you just come to me and humble yourself and not exalt yourself, that mercy will rain down. And this question gets brought up over and over and over again in Jesus. Who is righteous in God's sight? Who is truly part of the kingdom? See, religious people, we can see ourselves quickly and we can quickly become proud. We can be proud of all that we do. I can, I can find myself in this space, right? I can become proud at all that I do. I can look at all the things that I do. What really works here is we see that it's not our own goodness. And Jesus' conclusion is this, justified is the one who is a sinner and pro- approaches God based on his mercy. Pride for the believer should only be in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only place we put it. In a world of narcissism, in a world of posting on social media, in a wor- world of, of saying, look how good I am, in the church and outside the church, the church may be even worse at it. Instead, we boast in the cross. We boast in Jesus. We boast in his mercy. And Jesus is so clear here that it's only Jesus. And when we come to church, we should be like this. God, have mercy on my soul. God, your grace is enough to cover me. And Lord, I come in, whether it's one day or 50 years, I come in as the same sinner who only your grace makes us righteous. And it's affectionate when that happens. And I truly believe at that event on Friday, they saw that, that we, because we said that, we bought people's plaza and we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> right? We're just trying to figure this out. We know that the mercy of Jesus is enough and that Jesus Christ will be proclaimed in this place. And we join in the great call of changing our city. We do it differently than other people. Other people use their best minds and all that. And we come and we say, Jesus Christ is the only thing. And we humble ourselves. We don't exalt ourselves. And we serve. And we say, come sinner. Come tax collector. Come outcast of society. Come and see Jesus, not us. Amen? But the Pharisees aren't done. Mark 2, 18 through 20. This is hard to get. This is hard. This is hard. I see myself as a Pharisee a lot of times. This can creep up in us. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but the disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Now we can presume that this question is happening at Matthew's house as well, right? Same scene, same scribe saying this. And the question is, wait a second, if John's disciples fast and the Pharisees fast, all these good people, then why are these disciples of Jesus not? It's an important question. And Jesus answers by talking about a wedding. Now, this is important. Weddings were an important social event of that day. They lasted for about a week. I, if I come to your wedding or if I'm invited to your wedding, you will see me ghost out of there around 930. Okay? I will be there and I will party hard till 930. But then I am going to go home, throw on Sports Center, and take my chamomile tea and go to bed. All right? But in those days, it's a party. It's a party, and it's a week-long party. 
And it would have been the biggest party. They would have understood this, okay? And it would have been just plain bad manners to fast, okay? If I'm coming to your, if I'm coming to your, uh, your wedding, Meg and I, if we're planning our fast, okay, babe, this is a fasting day. For you know someone's wedding, we're not gonna be like you know what on that day let's go ahead and fast. Let's have all the buffet in front of us and everything that you can do, and we're gonna fast. It's absurd. It's absurd. And what would happen is while the bridegroom is still there, and Jesus' reference is is this wedding feast, and there would have been a religious association with this. Keep in mind the scribes and the Pharisees they know the Hebrew text better than anybody else. They know what's going on. And Jesus knows better, but he's going to be laying this down. There's religious association. There's this idea in Isaiah 25 called the messianic banquet. Like the bride and the groom coming together, two families joining together. The messianic uh, banquet was this idea of heaven and earth coming together, meeting this moment. The, The Messiah coming is heaven meeting earth. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm the bridegroom. I'm going to be throwing this banquet. I'm throwing the party. And these implications are obvious and religiously potent. Now, where do we get this? Isaiah 25, this feast and banquet is predicted. Read the whole chapter of Isaiah 25. It's a fascinating chapter. I'm going to read a section of it. But this chapter is a praise sharing that the Lord's deliverance of his people. And he's prophesying that the Messiah's glorious kingdom will begin. And this is how it's going to be begin. And Isaiah describes the situation that will exist when the kingdom is established here on earth. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On the mountain of the Lord Almighty will prepare a what? A feast of rich food for who? All peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain... He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tear, uh, wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It keeps going and going and going. Keep reading it. But God's deliverance of his people in the kingdom is pictured as a banquet feast on the mountain of the Lord Almighty. Food will be provided for all people, for everyone. There is a worldwide expansion of God's kingdom that's about to take place, and Jesus is that start. We'll have the best meats and the finest wines. But where else do we see besides the great banquet? And this is important to see. We see a shroud. We see actual death here. And what the religious people don't understand when they're talking to Jesus is that death is going to be conquered through Jesus as well. This covering, that a shroud is a covering that's placed on dead bodies. And what we see is that it's swallowed up. It's done with. He's going to give people eternal life. And he's going to say all the tears of grief that come with this, all the tears of grief that come with this, with death and with the world and all that you see, so important and so awesome that scriptures, they're so amazing. Where else do we see this? Revelation. You see Isaiah, we see Jesus proclaiming this, and we see in Revelation, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed 
away. Jesus is declaring when he's talking to the religious leaders, the old way of doing things is washed away. You're missing the revolution is what he's saying. American church, we can miss the revolution as well. We can make this all about how we have it all uh, put together and we miss the revolution of Jesus Christ. God will wipe every tear from every eye and death and mourning will be gone and pain and crying will vanish. Why? Because the order of the old things has passed away. And we have to understand this. Jesus, when he's responding to the Pharisees, he's saying there's so much more going on here. Why would I make my people fast? The bridegroom is here. Jesus is saying the feast is here. God's salvation is here. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to raise the dead. Israel has waited thousands of years for this salvation. Now is a time to celebrate, not a time to fast. You're completely missing it. He's saying that you have to have spiritual eyes to see it. He makes it very clear that the bridegroom will not be here forever. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then the they will fast in that day. He will be taken away. It's important to not miss this. Jesus', Jesus own life as the bridegroom is being taken away. This is not voluntary. This is violent. We know that, right? We know the rest of the story, that it's violent. When it happens, the fasting will begin, and we fast because we have salvation. We have salvation. But it doesn't mean that we're, we're far from suffering. It doesn't mean that we're far from, from pain. And that's what Jesus is saying. And we'll end here. Jay, you can come on up. But Jesus goes on and talks about the significance of what's happening in front of these religious leaders' eyes. They are missing it. And what we see is that the kingdom of God is entering. Mark 2, 21 through 22 no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth or an, on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear, tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Here we, say, we see Jesus is not coming to reform. He's coming to start a new movement. The gospel is a whole new way of living. This is the beginning of salvation in a new way. He's saying the religious leaders, it's futile to try to patch an old, literally a worn out garment with a new patch. Because what's going to happen is you're going to wash, it's going to expand, and when you, before you know it, the hole's actually going to be bigger. And what we see is this equally just uh, disastrous to pour fresh grape juice into old wineskins. You cannot fully ferment grape juice into wine in old wineskins, literally meaning the wineskin has expanded from the last use, and you're going to pour more grape juice, and it's going to expand more because that's what happens with ferment, and it's going to bust, and the wine's going to be bad. That's a big no-no, and the wineskin's going to be bad too. And it bursts the way that we see it. And he's saying salvation is only through me. Do you see it? Salvation is only through me. This is not a new and improved old covenant. This is the new covenant that was promised. Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Man, I'm not going to get into it. Look at all the ways that Jesus is pointing back to this. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. God's law in this new covenant, it's written in your minds and in your hearts. And I'll be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me to the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will what? I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the new covenant. This is the new covenant. We're under this. God is giving us a new beginning. And in this new beginning is a new covenant and his people. He's saying the covenant that God made with the forefathers at the time of Exodus was broken by people. But God's new covenant is an internalization of his law. The Holy Spirit to us as believers, it dwells in each of us and it's on our hearts and our minds. And the new covenant will be God's provision for our sins. God's new covenant is a provision for our sins. This is God's ultimate plan. He's doing a new thing. He's in a revolution. He's starting a revolution. We're in it. One of my problems is is that sometimes the church doesn't reflect that. I, I'm reading a, I read a book, uh, 1776. I don't know if you guys like that book, but uh, it's about the Revolutionary War. And what's amazing is what people went through for the revolution. They would do anything for the revolution. They believed in it so much. They're willing to die. They're willing to not eat. Like every page you turn, it's like there's a new disease going through the camps. And Jesus came. And he said, I'm starting a new thing here. A revolution. And I'm inviting anybody who doesn't think that they're good enough, but instead say, I need you, Jesus. And the revolution is what we get to choose to be a part of or not. But the revolution changes everything. And it's a completely new way of thinking. And the outside world is in desperate need of a revolution. Can I get an amen? But when we come in and we have the tendencies to look like the Pharisees, to look like the religious leaders, to have a who's in, who's not, to make sure that we're dressed the right way or make sure my mic's on when we begin. I'm sorry about that. We miss the revolution. I love you all. I love doing this. I love meeting together. We come together to celebrate what God's doing. But I'm, I also love being part of a revolution where I'm holding Jonathan and Don's hand and praying in the Sherry's. I love when I'm part of a revolution when I say, Lisa, you go, you go. My heart was saying, you go, Lisa, because I want to be part of a revolution. I don't, I don't want to just, I don't want this just to be normal. I, I don't want us to, we put a lot of time and effort to make this place look good, of course, and we have the skills and stuff like that. But when we, when people come in, I guarantee they're not saying, hey, is that 
floor mopped or is that sign correct? They're saying, am I part of something here that is so radically different because my heart and soul needs radically different. It doesn't need same old, same old. And when we share that we believe that we're part of the revolution, when we share, hey, nice to meet you. I'm a, as much of a sinner as you. Come on in. It changes everything. Because people in our community, for some reason, I don't know why, I wish I could change it. They say, I can't come to church because if I do, this whole place is going to set on fire. And I say, you know what? I promise it won't, but your heart's going to be set on fire. I promise you. Because we're part of a revolution. Go ahead and stand up. Heavenly Father, I pray right now, and I, I just ask that each one of you would search your heart. I pray for two people, two types of people right now. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for the person here who uh, who is who thinks they're um, who doesn't understand God's grace. Let's just put it that way. Doesn't understand that it has nothing to do with your behavior has everything to do with your heart. So if that's you, if you're in this room and you're like, I'm way too far from what God could ever love me. I'm way too far from a perfect God who could ever forgive me of my sins. I pray that the schemes of the enemy are tied up right now and that your heart would just scream, Jesus, I love you. If there's anybody here that needs to hear that, there's nothing that you have done or nothing that you could do that keeps you too far from Jesus. And there's a second group, a person that maybe feels like they're disqualified, that they don't have the skills or they just have lived a life that's too far from God, that they can't be used, that they can't be served in some ways. I pray against that in Jesus' name right now. And, and I pray that you would uh, show them the truth that actually out of their brokenness, out of their admission of being a sinner, that people will be way more attracted to Jesus than if they had their lives put together. So I pray for each person that we can speak out of what God has done in each one of our lives way more than we can speak about what we have done to get our lives right. That it's not about behavior modification. It's about life transformation that only comes when we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. So I pray that over each person. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. Jesus, I thank you that you chose to die on that cross. Not only that you died to, on that cross, but that you called the disciples and you called every outcast of society, every person that didn't feel like they were good enough, every person that felt like they weren't qualified, and you said, come and follow me. And when you came, when they came and they followed you, they didn't, you see it throughout the scriptures, they didn't have it figured out. Even to the point when you died, they didn't know really what was going on. But they were faithful to your call. And out of it, you started the church of Jesus Christ that we stand here today as an outpost of the kingdom at Gravely and Bridgeport. And we follow the example of these disciples. We are built off of fishermen and tax collectors. And we thank you for that, Jesus. Let us not lose that spirit. Let us be part of this revolution. Let us never lose our revolutionary heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.